welcome once again this morning. So our pastor is, is away, and uh, he asked me if I would say a few words. Uh, I, I, I've been reading a book this summer titled Return of the God Hypothesis. It's written by a philosopher of science, originally from uh, Cambridge University, who, who mentioned how uh, many scientists today are returning to the idea of, uh, of the creator God. The, it, I think it's instructive for us to uh, look at uh, biographies of, uh, of Christians down through the ages. You know, we often look at the uh, biographies of uh, the, some of the great names the, of the early church members. There's the characters in the Bible, uh, some of the missionaries. But uh, today what I'd like to do is to look at uh, some scientists uh, who uh, have professed a belief in, in God. Uh, I'm totally a uh, believer in the, as he says, the, the theistic uh, standpoint for the creation of the world. The, uh, the basic outline will be that I'm going to talk about six different scientists, give a very short uh, sort of a snapshot view of their accomplishments, and then give a quote by them which uh, shows where they stand in regards to uh, belief in, uh, in God and his creative powers. Our, our subject text this morning is uh, from Romans chapter 1, verse 20 where it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Perceived in the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So here we have uh, Paul's uh, plainly saying that uh, the natural world bears witness to the works of God both in its beauty, its complexity, the, uh, the laws that we follow. And so, so he leaves little doubt in, in Paul's mind that the creation does maintain or show the glory of God. One of the central uh, messages of, uh, or central question that anyone can ask is who is God? And if, if, is he the creator? Well, with, with Paul here, you know, he notes that the power and divine nature of God and that this can be clearly seen in the world. This, of course, is nothing new. It's, it's been the foundational point of all of the uh, historic faiths of the church. If you look at the, uh, the creeds that were developed in the early church, the Nicene Creed, as far back as 325 AD, uh, the Apostles' Creed, all of them begin with the statement that I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Later with the Protestant Reformation, these creeds were reaffirmed. Uh, of course, the classic one was the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1647, followed by uh, the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. Since this is a Baptist church, I thought I'd read from, from the Baptist Confession. And this is what it says. In the beginning, it pleased God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create the world. Now, of course, we, we have these creeds, but we, we need no go no uh, further than actually the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, 
It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It was interesting in looking at this, uh, it was noted that uh, the Hebrew word uh, bara, which means create, is only used in a sentence when God is the subject. So the verb used for create is only used in reference uh, to God or to, to Yahweh, as we said. So this morning, as I said, we wanted to look at six uh, men of science, I guess you could call them, who profess the belief in God. And I'm going to do this chronologically, starting with the, early, with the earliest here. It's this, this gentleman was born in 1591. His name was Johannes Kepler. He was a German astronomer. Did most of his work in, in Prague, in the, now the Czech Republic. Uh, one, uh, one, an interesting thing I, I read about him was that he reported in 1604 on a, uh, he observed a supernova. Now a supernova is a, uh, when an aging star collapses and gives off some very bright light. And, uh, was a, and it was in 1604. Actually that was the last supernova that occurred in, in this galaxy, in the Milky Way. So uh, he, was, uh, he reported on that. He was one of the first to use a telescope. Up until that time, they were using quadrants and sextants to look at the naked eye at the sky. But uh, amazingly, they, you know, they, they could make uh, measurements of the movements of, of the planets. But with the use of the telescope and his mathematical capabilities, he was able to uh, precisely chart the, the courses of the planets. And if you've ever had a course in astronomy, you've probably heard of, of Kepler's planetary laws of motion. Which, which in essence uh, confirms the idea that the Earth goes around the Sun rather than the Sun around the Earth, which you can see how someone would think that originally, and uh, also that they do not, it, it's, the orbits are not circular but elliptical, more like an oval. He believed that God designed in a very rational and orderly way, and that uh, he gave humans this rationality so they could understand it. He, he, he said that scientists have a very high calling. And, th and this is the quote. Like I said, I'm going to give a quote from each of these individuals. This is a quote from Johannes Kepler back in the 17th century. He said, God wanted us to recognize these natural laws by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts, thinking God's thoughts after him. And that was very amazing to me. I mean, it struck me that when studying this, you're actually thinking the thoughts of God. This is very interesting. But of course, uh, long before Johannes Kepler, we had uh, a shepherd boy who became king. Uh, he was an, an amateur astronomer himself, you know, sitting out at night and unencumbered by uh, city lights. He could watch the stars. And I, I thought it appropriate to mentions some of, uh, just, just two of uh, David's uh, psalms where he mentions the, uh, the, the works of God seen in the heavens. Psalm 19.1, he says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And then again in Psalm 8, verse 34, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That you forgive, and that, that Kepler would add, or you've given him the rationality to understand it. 
God's people have a privileged place in, in, in creation uh, in the order, though often we understand only dimly what many things is going on. Uh, the works uh, speak, I think, to the glories of the Creator. This next individual is someone that, uh, I think everyone has probably heard of. This is Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, Newton was a, a professor of mathematics at Cambridge University. And of course, he is credited with uh, this, uh, the law of gravity, the universal law of gravity. Now, it's an apocryphal story that he discovered, as they say, he discovered gravity when an apple fell on his head. <laughs> that, that's not really the case. But he was in an apple orchard when he developed his, uh, first began to develop this idea of the, uh, the mathematical precision of, of gravity. Of course, what he, what the law that Newton came up with was that every particle is attracted towards each other, and it's a direct uh, association with their, their weight or their mass and indirectly with their distance, or should square their distance. But he hypothesized that this, this force, which he called gravity, transmitted through empty space, was, was the uh, responsible for keeping the stars and the planets in their, uh, in their orbits. Gravity, the, the sun is attracted, the earth is attracted to the sun, the moon's attracted to the earth, and the apple's attracted to the earth as well. By the way, it was, he, he calculated it fell at 16 feet per second. So he, he was actually looking at an apple. <laughs> but uh, he also de uh, developed what is known as uh, Newton's laws of motion, uh, several of them. Probably the most familiar is the first one, the law of inertia. And probably most everyone has heard of that, the idea that a body at rest remains at rest until acted upon by an outside force. That's you know, like children, <laughs> to act it upon by an outside force. These calculations were, you know, they were not trivial. And what he developed, actually, a whole system of mathematics that we now call calculus, in order to, uh, to be able to describe mathematically these gravitational laws and laws of motion. So, I mean, just think of it, the whole system of calculus was begun by this man. One, one thing that we, is not as well known is that Newton wrote almost as much about theology as he did about mathematics and science. And, and he was keenly aware of uh, the role that, that was played by a theistic uh, uh, deity, as he referred to it. The, uh, he was uh, approached, uh, actually, about to become a clergyman, and he turned it down. He said that he thought that his work would be more well-received if it was coming from a scientist rather than a clergyman. So this is the quote I wanted to use from him. This, he wrote uh, this in response to a question on his universal law of gra uh, gravitation. Now, this is in 17th century prose, so it may sound a little stilted, but I think we can get the gist of it. He says, through these bodies may indeed persevere, though, sorry, though these bodies may indeed persevere in their orbits by the mere laws of gravity, yet they could by no means have at first derived the regular position of their orbits themselves from these laws. And that's, that's a major point even today that many more materialistic scientists would say that they assume that the law, the physical laws of nature, were the same as the laws that began uh, that began it. 
And here we have Newton who actually developed many of these laws originally, saying that's not the case. And, and his last, last quote from Newton, he says, thus this most beautiful system of sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and the dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. I think we know of whom he speaks. Switch, switching over to the, uh, the biological sciences, away from physics, astronomy. This is a man that probably is least known of the two. His, his name by the name of Carl Linnaeus, or Carlos Linnaeus in his Latinized form, living from 1707 to 1778. He was a Swedish botanist, a biologist, and a, and a staunch Christian. It was he that developed the, uh, the scientific method of classification. It's referred to as the binomial system of nomenclature, binomial two names. It's where we get the idea of genus and species, like we are Homo sapiens, Canis familiaris, <laughs> the dog, giving scientific names, most of them Latinized. Uh, and, and it was very important because it was hierarchical, you know, kingdom, phylum, class, genus down, down through the through the way. And uh, he, he, he felt that uh, by doing this, he was carrying on God's work as well. And, and as, he pointed, as he had pointed out and others before him, this was really one of the first jobs that was given to Adam. In Genesis 2.20, it says, the man, which was Adam, gave names to all livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. And Linnaeus looked upon his work as simply uh, furthering that, uh, that task that was given by God to man in the beginning, and uh, of course doing it in a more systemized way. Uh, many uh, writers, of course, you know, have sort of poo-pooed the idea of taxonomy uh, or of naming. Uh, I, I, I mentioned the, uh, you know, Shakespeare, you know, classically in, in Romeo and Juliet, he said, that which we call a rose by any other name, would it not smell as sweet? Well, certainly it would. And then uh, another writer, uh, Lewis Carroll, the fellow that wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, he, he has a, a, a character in his novels saying, uh, uh, what's the use in their having names if they don't answer to them? And the precocious Alice said, well, it's no use to them but it's useful to those that name them, I suppose. <laughs> and that is the point, that it's useful to those who name them. Naming something, going out, looking at a tree, that's a maple, that's an oak, this is an E. coli, that's a streptococci, can be very important. Uh, and so giving a name to something is not mundane, but, uh, and as Linnaeus thought, carrying on the works of God. And the quote I'd like to use for him, he says, the earth's creation is the glory of God, and it is the task of the naturalist to construct a natural classification that would reveal this order in the universe. God created the world, and it's possible to understand God's wisdom by studying his creation. The next one I want to look at was a man by the name of Michael Faraday. Oops. Sorry, I think I may be out of. Yeah, we'll go to Louis Pasteur. <laughs> Faraday must be next. Again, a familiar name like Newton. Louis Pasteur, uh, well, the French, uh, originally trained as a chemist, 
first developed the science of uh, microbiology. He was the one that responsible for determining that microbes are responsible for uh, you know, causing uh, putrefaction uh, for, uh, and uh, also the decomposition of things. And that's the main reason why we know him today, that the pasteurization process is, you know, by mild heating for a certain amount of time, it can destroy uh, the uh, disease-causing organisms or organisms that are going to cause, cause certain products to turn bad and to go sour. Uh, but he was, he was also uh, very uh, active, and actually his, his main claim to fame was his work with vaccines. He developed a vaccine for anthrax, to be used with animals when the French sheep flocks were being devastated by this disease. But uh, he's most importantly remembers developing a vaccine uh, treatment for, for rabies, which of course was uh, known at that time and still is a fatal disease if not treated. He, uh, the, the, the young man that he uh, did his first rabies vaccination on was only a nine-year-old child. Uh, Certainly, it wouldn't cut mustard today. Probably with an e wouldn't be approved by the FDA, but the uh, the proof was in the pudding, as they say. Uh, the, the child survived. They, it was common knowledge if you were bitten by a rabid animal, you would die, and this child didn't. So, uh, and again, this this one passed your great fame. He started, you know, his own uh, scientific institute and pasture the Pasture Institute, which exists to this day, and. Uh, Many people have, uh, have gone there to be trained. Well, this is the quote from Pasteur. He says, A bit of science distance, distances one from God, but much science nears one to him. The more I study nature, the more I stand amazed at the work of the Creator. Our next word uh, is... Uh, is uh, Michael Faraday. Now Faraday may not be as well known, but what he did revolutionized modern society. He was a, a chemist by training, but uh, also worked primarily as an experimentalist. He was a, a hands-on type of fellow rather than a theoretician. He discovered uh, in his early career the compound benzene, you know, the organic uh, uh, compound at C6H6. But he's most well known for his work with electromagnetism. It was, he's known as the founder of, of electrical science, in essence. He developed what he called a dynamo, which was uh, actually the first electric generator or, or, or electric motor. And of course, the, the ability to generate electricity you know, has transformed modern life. He, he was a very hu of a humble background. His father was a blacksmith. And he, uh, but he, he rose to become the head of uh, the Royal Institution, which was again another scientific research uh, laboratory at this time in London. There was, there was an interesting story I, I read about him that uh, when he was gaining, gaining, gaining so much fame, they sent a, a government official was sent to the lab. It was, it was a person from what would be similar to our Department of the Treasury and to see the demonstration, and he showed him how he could generate electric current. And the, uh, the, the government official says, well, this is all very nice, uh, Mr. Faraday, but what's the use of it? <laughs> he couldn't figure out what, what would be used. And, and, and Faraday famously replied, I think, you know, he was a man of wit as well, I guess. He said, sir, 
there is every probability that eventually you'll be able to tax it. So, <laughs> uh, as I say, Faraday was a very devout man. He, he was a teaching elder in his church. He, uh, he, every Sunday for over 50 years, he, was, he attended when he could his uh, little nonconformist chapel in East London. And it was very small, it was only about 20 families. It never got much bigger than that, they were told. And when he would talk, he, would, he said he would read long portions of the gospel, slowly and reverently. And one commenter said, it says, he read with such an intelligent and sympathizing appreciation of the meaning that I thought I had never heard it before. <laughs> Very interesting. But he wasn't, wasn't quite as kind in reference to his sermons. He said his sermons tended to be a, a mosaic patchwork of other people's quotes. No similarity here today, I'm sure. <laughs> But uh, the, the quote that uh, I have two for, for, for Michael Faraday, and this is the first one. He says, without the conviction of sin, there is no ground of hope for the Christian. So a very orthodox man, yeah. uh, recognition that, you know, that salvation requires a recognition of the need of it. That to be forgiven of sin, one has to recognize one is a sinner. And this last quote, which was uh, he, wrote, he had written as in his later age, near his retirement, he says, My worldly faculties are slipping away day by day. <clears throat> as they ebb, they may leave, they leave, it leaves us like a little child, trusting in the Father of mercies and accepting his unspeakable gift. I bow before him as Lord of all. As you can see, a very devout man and a man of science. So moving on, along again then chronologically, this is a, a 20, actually a 21st century uh, physicist, probably less well known, uh, John Polkinghorne. He uh, just died this year in, in 2021, 90 years old. And he was a, a theoretical physicist, uh, president of uh, Queen's College in England, at Cambridge, and uh, primarily a mathematician. And when he was 50 years old, he decided he was going to become a minister. <laughs> so, and, and he was ordained in, in the Church of England. He, he said he felt a little out of place with his fellow scientists. Uh, he described it as sometimes feeling like a vegetarian butcher. So I thought <laughs> that was a funny uh, thing. But, but he's most, most well known for, for propagating the, the idea of what's known as the anthropic principle. Anthro anthropos uh, is the Greek word you know for man. And the idea is uh, simply that the way things are arranged in the universe allows for mankind for life to begin. And he said that it's, it's so finely tuned, that was the phrase he liked to use, finely tuned, that it would be almost impossible to think that this all could happen by chance. And he, and he cited many things in his work like uh, you know, the energy, the physical laws, he talked about um, the gravitational forces by Newton, uh, the, uh, the electromagnetic forces by, uh, that we, had, we see with, uh, with uh, Faraday. And he noticed that if, if like, things like the speed of light or the, the, the mass or weight of a proton, a subatomic particle, was off by just a very slight amount, that life would not, be, would not happen. It couldn't exist, nor would the universe itself that would implode upon itself. You know, for example, you give the example of the moon. If the moon, you know, the moon, our moon, 
controls the tides and that if uh, the moon was closer, the tides would be higher, sweeping away land mass, the friction itself of the pounding tides would cause the temperature to, to rise. And uh, or if, it was, if the moon was uh, farther away, the tides would be much less and it just sort of be like a ebbing in uh, of, the, uh, of the tides that the, the oceans would probably go stagnant, marine life would die, of course they're one of the major uh, producers of oxygen that life needs. So minor changes in any of these things would not be beneficial for the promotion of life. And this fine-tuning that he, he uh, promoted, he said, was very importantly now and has been present since the very beginning. These, have, these things haven't changed, the mass of a proton, the, the gravitational force. So they're, they're not evolving in, in that sense. And the quote that uh, I'd like to give from him is from Professor Polkinghorn is, there is just one universe, and that's very important since many of the materialistic, uh, uh, atheistic uh, points of view, would, they counter this fine-tuning by saying, well, there's more than one universe. They, they believe in a multi-universal uh, uh, paradigm. And he said, there is just one universe, I think the Bible would go along with that, there's just one universe in which, which is the way it is in its anthropic fruitfulness, that is the ability for mankind to flourish, because it is the expression of the purposeful design of a creator who has endowed it with the finely tuned potential for life. So we've gone from the 17th century to the 21st, and there are uh, showing that there have been men of science who have uh, certainly held with the idea of a creator, adhering to the, uh, the, the tenets of the early Christian faith, all of the creeds, and also what we read in the Bible. Now you may be asking, why does any of this matter? <laughs> I'm sure that most people here uh, believe that God created the heaven and earth. Uh, if you hear it, probably doubt it. And, and it's important for us to realize that you know our belief in God is not based upon scientific proof for him. Uh, science does not prove the existence of God. Uh, it, but it does provide the, the, these quotes and the, this, uh, these uh, principles provide a basis for countering some of the antithetical works when uh, people say that science is totally against religion and totally against the idea of a theistic approach to, uh, uh, to, the, to cosmology, if you will, the beginning of the universe. The, um, and certainly that's the pervasive uh, philosophy you would hear in most of the public schools. It predominates on public broadcasting, those, those shows that sort of popularize science, all pretty much would... Uh, Shu uh, talking anything about a creator. You know, we are called upon to give an account, uh, you know, give an answer if someone asks why we believe. And as I said, we can't, we, we, we can't use these arguments to prove that God exists. We know that God exists because we, be, we believe in the Bible. The Bible is an inspired book and what it says that we accept and the inerrancy of it. But ultimately, even then, we believe in it because it's a gift that God gives to us. God gives us the gift to believe. And if we don't have it, we should urgently seek to get it, to ask. Many uh, uh, people in 
the modern world, I guess I could say. Uh, the, the, the enemy of Christianity is not so much other religions. Some, some uh, different uh, polls that have been taken when they were asked to uh, mark, what is your re religious preference? Jewish, Christian, Hindu, uh, Muslim. Uh, there's a category, none of the above. And in the Pew Research polls, they say that this is a growing category. There's more and more people saying that, that none, they don't have a, have a religion. And actually, that, that is probably uh, one of the things that needs the, that those who are engaged in evangelism need to realize. We're not fighting against uh, someone that's going to be converting to, Muslim, to the Muslim religion. It's actually more uh, we're fighting or against people that are not having any religion at all. And, uh, the, and, there, and there's many reasons for this. You know, most of them are young. It's more of an under 30 crowd. And uh, they uh, have, you know, Lum had problems with the established church. And, uh, but uh, sometimes one of the reasons, and, and it's a fairly part one, is that science has disproved God. And this is where things like what we've discussed today, I think, can come in handy and say, no, uh, science has not shown that there is no God. Science cannot prove that there is a God, but certainly belief science does not be, is not a major obstacle to belief in God. So I think that's, that is what we need to uh, be aware of. So that while belief in, in a Christian God is not something, as I say, that is scientifically provable. Science does make belief in God something that is not irrational. And that's the point that I think we need to make as, as we interact with others. And that, as I say, uh, this whole idea of a theistic, the return, the return of the God hypothesis, this book was just published this year, so, uh, is gaining sway, even, even among scientific people. I'd like to close by, again, going back to the Psalms, with just this little quote, uh, this portion of scripture, which I think sort of summarizes what these folks do, what the scientists do. And this is from Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, of Yahweh. They are studied by all who delight in them. And I think that's the key. It is those who delight in the laws of, the, of, the, of God, who delight in what's been seen, these are the ones that study it. And certainly uh, the folks that were mentioned today, these were you know, giants in the field, intellectual giants. So with that, I think I'll close. Uh, if anyone would like to uh, discuss uh, this further, I mean, I can refer you to some websites or books. That, uh, but uh, I think it's important we realize that science does not make belief in God an irrational process. I have to close again.